Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant. AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. I'd say honesty is something that I try to cultivate in my personal life, but it's not something that is a huge motivator for why I write about the things that I write about. I think it's more that I'm interested in, in applying rigor and criticism to aspects of pop culture that other people kind of ignore. That was Doreen St. Felix. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. succeeded. Growing up in New York City, she was a grade A student in high school. She flourished at Brown University after that, and then quickly became the editor of the school's weekly newspaper. It was no surprise that success followed her outside the classroom. While others waffled in post-college malaise, Doreen wrote authoritatively on race, pop culture, sex, and music. She wrote for a variety of outlets, including Vogue, New York Magazine, The Fader, Pitchfork. Once she established herself, she was hired as an editor-at-large at Lenny, which was co-founded by Lena Dunham. After that, she was brought on as a culture staff writer at MTV News. Facts are facts. Forbes listed her in their 30 under 30 list, while NPR, Brooklyn Magazine, and others continued to highlight Doreen's work. There are many writers on the internet, staffers, freelance, in-between, who write loudly about the pop culture of the day. What you mostly find are reactive hot takes written for the shareable tweet. 
Whether she's dissecting Rihanna, Frank Ocean, or Karen Walker, Doreen is measured in her writing. She focuses on aesthetic and form. She unpacks the politics of an artist without stacking the deck or revealing too much about her own beliefs. In short, she's a damn good writer. I sat down with Doreen not too long after The New Yorker had brought her on to be a contributing writer. We recorded this conversation inside the Bella Goya restaurant. It was a great setting to talk, but keep in mind, it is still a restaurant. So, please excuse the audio imperfection. Now, finally, here is Doreen St. Felix. start with the name how how did that happen (laughs) is that a real name it is my real name so you came out of the womb and the parents were like doreen saint felix that's actually exactly how it happened there's a little bit more of a backstory to it um so my mother had wanted to name me either dominique or vanessa two names that i think i would not do very well with if that had gone down but um she was actually not totally conscious when I was born. I was born via vacuum, right? So my mom is just like recovering. She'd been put under. And my father kind of just like burst in the room and completely forgot what he was supposed to name me. So he was talking to a nurse, found out the nurse's name, and that's how I became Doreen St. Felix. St. Felix is obviously my family name, but yeah. This is a silly question, but did the name mean anything to you growing up? Did you know you had a name that signified something? That I had an NPR name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Once I got a little older, I realized that the name for a lot of people has some gravitas to it. But to me, being a little girl, being in Brooklyn, all I wanted was to be named like Lizzie or Katie or something. Like I wanted an easy name. Lizzie? Well, I loved Lizzie McGuire. So there's an actual reason why. So we both grew up with the shows. <laughs> yes, we did. Disney yeah. Channel kids. Um, Is that what we're supposed to call ourselves? I think we're the Disney Channel generation, right? Like Raven and stuff? Yeah. It's oh. like we were so cute when we were young, totally innocent, and then just evolved into <laughs> political disarray. You're saying I devolved? I mean, I did. Oh, I don't okay. know. Maybe well, you didn't. None of you did. Then Myself I did. And, and Raven Simone certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um. So, yeah, you know, it's a it's a big name for a little girl to have. Mm. But as I grew older, I developed like an affection for my name. And I love that my name can be hard for some people to pronounce. You know, some people are jarred by the accent in my last name. And I like that. I think it's you like to be jarring. Yeah, I like to be jarring. And I think that parents should always give their kids difficult names. Were you jarring in high school? No, I was a like straight shooter in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, what I did. What does that look like? Well, I got a scholarship to go to a Catholic girls' school on the Upper East Side, and my commute in total was three hours. So it was an hour and a half going, an hour and a half coming back. But I did it because it was like this is the best opportunity a student could have in the city. Um, yeah, so I was the kind of kid who did like 
every kind of extracurricular activity, took all the APs. It's a big loser. Mm. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to say that. That sounds nice. I mean, it's looking back, I wish that I'd had more time to maybe just kind of like focus on things outside of academics. But I mean, figuring out who you are and stuff like that. Yeah, that could be cool. But um, the school you went to was predominantly white, right? Yes. Although the percentage of students of color was on the higher end schools in that area so I think my class was probably 25% students of color I mean that percentage is not reflected in most schools in America so you've talked about going to that school I've read in other interviews before mm-hmm. have you felt the need to uh, like mythologize your past when you're asked about it well I think you know I recognize that there's not a lot of young black women who are working in the space that I do. And I think part of the reason why I feel like I need to give that background is not necessarily to prove to people why I am where I am, but to maybe like speak to a certain like population of listener, you know, like I talk to a lot of women of color who are like a few years younger than me. And they're like, well, how do you maneuver yourself to get into that position? So For me, it's like I don't want to have like any mystery when it comes to why I was able to get certain opportunities as a writer. You know, Um, I know a lot of writers who don't like to share their tips. They don't like to share their tricks because they'd like to maintain the mysterious aura around why. Who they are and why. they. Yeah. And I think that's lame. (laughs) It's not the way that I that I do things. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I would say that it's in the spirit of honesty um, and in the spirit of making my life story as accessible as it possibly can be to other aspiring writers. Has honesty got you to the place you are? Cause I think for context, I mean, you're 23, 25, 25. Yeah. See, the, the information <laughs> online is, is wrong. Oh, it says I'm 23? Okay, the no, Wikipedi- let's go with that. The I'm Wikipedi- 23 now. <laughs> the Wikipedia says 1993. Oh, that's wrong. Okay. I'm, I'm 25. Okay, you're 25. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of things to lead you up to becoming a regular contributor to The New Yorker. But, I mean, for people listening, for people who do know your writing, is it honesty that got you to where you were I mean or where you are now I think it's aimlessness that got me to where I am I went to school for English writing not because I thought that I was ever going to have a career as a journalist but because I was bad at everything else Um, and when I graduated I didn't really have any career uh, prospects and so I thought eventually I'll probably just like bury myself in grad school Um, but I started using social media in a way that eventually led me to meet with editors and to be able to understand that if you have an idea that you can express in a tweet, chances are you can express it in a longer piece. So I'd say honesty is something that I try to cultivate in my personal life, but it's not something that is a huge motivator for why I write about the things that I write about. I think it's more that I'm interested in, in applying rigor and criticism 
two aspects of pop culture that other people kind of ignore. Not everyone, obviously, but like a lot of mainstream publications uh, don't necessarily know how to like talk about. Well, when I was writing, when when I first started writing, people didn't really have a good grasp of like the black female pop star. So that was something that myself and I think a lot of other young black writers are very interested in looking at in a critical way. Um, so yeah, it's about filling the void. You're, you're talking about writing about a very specific thing and something you know how to write about and you're good at writing about it. I was thinking about this in a larger context. Um, Wesley Morris came on the show last year mm-hmm. and I asked him whether he felt he had been put in a box that he had to write about the same thing. And he said, he said, I know I can write about anything. It's a moral duty to write about how race and popular culture works. I wanted to throw that to you. Do you feel it's, it's a moral duty on your part? I have a hard time with morals, but I love Wesley Morris. I think if I were so to... this is a tough question <laughs> then. If I were to maybe modify what he said for me, it's more of a just insatiable interest that I have uh, in the nexus of race and pop culture. I think that every phenomenon that's happening right now in the mainstream has a predecessor. One example that I can point to is the idea that black men are becoming looser with their masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not something that's new. We can look back to Little Richard. We can look back to all the guys who are like conking their hair in the 30s and 40s. There's always been a looseness to black masculine masculinity and Obviously, like every generation thinks that they're the first to use a style, right? They think that they're the inventors of it, but it's just not true. And so I like to think of myself as a student before anything else. And I love to bring a historical perspective or um, a historical framing to things that are happening Mm. and pop. I think you have that knack like where you're because a lot of there are a lot of writers um our age who are very good at voicing their opinions they have a strong opinion about mm-hmm. something and they don't there's not a lot of in the text there's not a lot of references and not no citations no backlogging in the history and that's something that i think has distinguished your work is that you often use the past as an example of why things are happening in the present I think part of the reason why we don't see as many citations and references as there should be in pop culture writing also is because there's not really a feedback system that warrants or that there's not a feedback system that rewards that, right? So You're talking about on the editing front or or the or editing the institutional readers, everything. It's all you know, it's just a milestone of different uh, forces coming together at once. So if a writer only has six to eight hours to turn around a piece, maybe they're not going to have enough time to put in the research that I think would give the piece a, a sense of longevity so that it would be you know, relevant a week after. Mm. Um, but luckily for me, I've been able to be in positions where I can take that extra day or I can take the extra hours. And I, I just like get off on giving... Um, my ideas a thickness and proving them um, I you know 
like you said, you can like have any opinion that you want, but being able to prove it with examples is something that I think satisfies like the mathematical part of my brain, you know? Mm. What was something you were surprised about when you first started entering like the freelance journalism world? Because you leave Brown in 2014. Yeah. Right. And Mm -hmm. you go immediately into writing for places. Yeah. I started freelancing in April of 2015. Okay. Um, But, you know, at Brown, I was writing and editing. I was the editor also at one point of the College Hill Independent, which is the weekly newspaper. Mm. Um, Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I was just surprised by how lawless freelancing is. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that can be hard as a freelancer is that you have no sense of the inner workings of whatever publication you happen to be writing for that day. And so you're always trying to approximate a voice that they use. And you're trying to maybe anticipate some things that you think the editor would want based on pieces that you've read, but you never know. It's just, it's a guessing game. And I think that's something that I don't like. It's hard. writing for a bunch of different people at um, the same time, which is why I kind of like uh, tried to find your home, a home. You know, when I was at Lenny, I wasn't full time. I was part time. So I was still freelancing at other places, but Mm -hmm. it did give me a stability um, and a sense of continuity that I think made my writing stronger. I've been reading a lot of those pieces that you wrote for Lenny letter. Mm hmm. I mean, where do you stand on, now that you're not there anymore, with some distance from it, where do you stand on Lenny as a a publication? Do you see it as, like, sustainable? Did it make sense to you at the time? How did you feel when you worked there? That's a great question. Uh, Lenny Letter was my first job. First, like, proper... First job as a writer, yeah. I mean, I was technically editor-at-large, but I did... I mostly wrote and, you know, brought in some writers and sometimes edited pieces. For me, I I had no sense of what uh, the women's writing industry was online before I started at Lenny, right? Because I was mostly interested in music writing. Um, and through uh, my editor, Jessica Gross, through Laya Garcia, who's a deputy editor at Lenny, I was able to just, like learn of this world, Jezebel, Hairpin, all these sites that to me were doing something like invaluable when it comes to women's discourse, women who are like not afraid to fight with other women. That's something that I love to see. And I think having my start there just like invariably shaped the way that I would interact with publications that aren't explicitly for women. Do you consider yourself one of those writers? Um, you know, I haven't had that much of a chance to do much of what could be categorized as women's writing. Um, and that's mostly because I didn't stay at Lenny for that long. And after that, I went to MTV and, you know, I was doing mostly music stuff there. But I definitely would consider myself one of those readers, Uh you know, like I like to read uh, (laughs) writing by women that I don't like because I think it strengthens um, my critical eye, you know, because it's a good practice. It's a good muscle to build. Um, You should always be, I think it's good to be cynical. Mm -hmm. It's good to scrutinize people 
and starting off working with women, I was able to freely exercise um, that aspect of being both a reader and a writer and also an editor. So I love Lenny. You know, I will always have love for what Lenny is doing um, and also for all the other publications that are in similar lanes. What I'm constantly impressed by with Lenny, I, I, I'm subscribed, so I get their like weekly or maybe even daily note where they're like, you got to read this. They sent one out about Jill Soloway. Mm-hmm. That and like ev- if you go on there every other day, there's something fascinating. But um, it has received some fair some unfair criticism for uh lena's contribution or rather lena's public persona bleeding into lenny in a way that doesn't seem ideologically appropriate i guess i'm I'm bumbling Hmm. the phrasing here but do you know what i'm talking about um what are some examples of that criticism i think it's it's the larger thing is lena's public persona Mm -hmm. um representing Lenny's editorial mission, mm-hmm. which I don't think are the same thing at all. They're not the same thing. Um, and that's something that was clear from the beginning that no one person's political or ideological views were going to dictate what the newsletter would read like. And that's why, you know, Jessica Gross was brought in. Jessica Gross was at Jezebel. Like, she does not subscribe to that kind of um, editorial fashioning. Uh, I think people, you know, people, I wasn't really on the internet when a lot of the initial girls analysis was happening Mm. because I was in school, like drunk all the time, but (laughs) they're clearly, I'm just going to write that down real quick (laughs) in school, (laughs) drunk all the time, not some of the time, all the time, some of the time, some of the time. Okay. Hold on. Some of the time. Okay. No, I mean, that's to say I'm. I'm, I was somewhat of a reluctant digital native. I just didn't really spend that much time online in the early 2010s, I guess. And I think there's a residue that comes from the analyses of girls that obviously got read on to Lenny. And I think that anybody who reads a newsletter faithfully, who actually reads it, mm. will see that it's like it's it's just it's not one person's project. Right. It's you a know, whole group. It's of a people. collaboration. Yeah. When you're leaving Lenny and you go to MTV, working at these places, do you ever feel the age gap between yourself and your editors? Uh, that's actually a really good question. Every workroom that I've been a part of has been has skewed young, mm. and for me, young is like anyone who's younger than fifty years old. <laughs> um, I'm the youngest in my family. My parents had me when they were in their 40s. I was, I've always been around people who were like a generation or maybe even two generations uh, above me and, and have always felt like very comfortable socializing with them. Um, but I do think that obviously geographical differences, age differences, maybe even just like taste obviously dictates, you know, tension and newsrooms and I think MTV News had that every place that I've worked at has had uh, tension that's based on taste but every place that I've worked at has also trusted that you know even if they didn't like something that I wanted to write about or even if they liked something that I hated Uh they knew that I had a reason and an argument to sort of like back up why it wasn't like you know just like 
having an opinion for an opinion's sake. It was about investigating that opinion and making sure that it was um, backed up either way. See, there, I think there's for writers, there's two personas. There's one that's on the page and one that people don't see, which is mm-hmm. how you're interacting with editors when it comes to pitching and voicing your, you know, your voice and making your stories worth publishing. Are you forceful, like, in behind the scenes like that? Huh. You know, I have always believed that editors are the greatest gift to a writer. I have never really been (laughs) big-headed enough to think that an editor, like, knew less than I did about a subject or was trying to maybe dampen my voice. Um, So I just, like, don't believe in having that much of a combative relationship with your editor obviously if there's something that I really believe in um, I'll fight for it and sometimes if an editor is asking you to strike something or asking you to change your arguments because your argument's not that good in the first place and they just like don't understand it mm. so I've always felt like that and that behind the scenes dialogue between writer and editor is just like what takes a piece from good to something that's going to stand the test of internet time which we all know is like 45 minutes so (laughs) seconds seconds (laughs) yeah that's a better measure so yeah i love i love working with editors and it's something that i wish younger writers had more of an opportunity to do Mm. you're removing ego from the equation yeah it's i listen i got a lot of ego but i also know that I want my writing to be the best version that it can be. How much ego? I mean, I have as much ego as any person who decides that writing is the profession that they want to get into, right? There's obviously a modicum of ego necessary to be able to do this job. I agree. But I also know that it's not in my cards to become a personality. It's not in my cards to become a celebrity in that way I always want to be able to kind of like recede in the background so that I'm able to tell stories that's mm. the most important thing for me well you here's maybe where I'm going there is a reason you could have an ego I mean you interviewed Kamala Harris at like 23 <laughs> yeah I think I was 23 so you're going <laughs> into that situation I mean not only does it go well, but I imagine plenty of people read that and was like, wow, this this person, I don't know if they knew your age, but if you came to me and said, I have, I know, I'm egotistical or I, like, I'm combative with editors because I think I'm right, people would be like, well, <laughs> you did, you have done a lot. Yeah, I mean, I am, I'm definitely a workhorse. Um, I like to challenge myself. I wouldn't consider myself a politics writer, but Mm. when an opportunity comes up to interview Kamala, you're going to take it. Uh, Especially, I think, in the context of Lenny, which is really good at being in that middle ground of being a women's publication, but also like doing hard politics. And I was able to ask questions to that effect. I think media is obviously moving in a direction where they're understanding that they need young black and brown voices and that has a good side and also has a bad side sometimes I think a lot of young writers are called on to write about things that they have like long-standing cultural knowledge about 
because editors know, you know, I'm like a 40 year old white guy. Like I can't write this piece on Kalani or I can't write this piece on Beyonce. Let me get this, this young person who I know from social media to do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's not, doesn't always uh, result in the best sort of writing um, because it kind of, it forecloses an opportunity, I think, of like real research and consideration in the writer because the idea is like, oh, you just like know this thing already. Mm. So just spit out what you already know. But um, I think it promotes enthusiasm. Yes. Actually, one of my favorite writers, Raria Kamir, who's at The Outline, tweeted something that I thought was so on point today, which is basically just like young writers should be encouraged to write about things that they don't like to write about things that are outside of their fandom because you know it builds a set of critical skills that are just like necessary for sustaining a job in this industry you know it's like the current think piece wave has a lot of currency in what like pop stars are doing right now and a lot of those pop stars are black and brown but we don't know what the wave is going to be in like a year, a year and a half. Look at, you know, what's coalescing in the political realm in this country. It's all around like whiteness and the alt-right. Um, so I, I have always been very aware of the fact that like some people look at me as a token and I try to take every opportunity to make them understand that I can have cultural knowledge about something, but I also have a set of skills and I would much rather be pursued for those skills than like what they think I might know about as like a black girl who grew up in Brooklyn. Who's viewed you as a token? I I think like the entire industry that I work in (laughs) obviously creates um, a system where people think of my identity first. And I think that's what I mean by tokenization. Uh, There's a difference between looking at a a writer and and seeing them as just a writer and looking at them and seeing them as like a young black girl who has like a certain tone or who has a certain um, maybe even like social capital that can then be transferred onto the publication. It's something I think if you were to interview anybody, they'd be like, yeah, like I can clock when somebody is you know, interested in like using me for reasons that aren't just about like uh, my skill as a writer. So do you think you've received jobs? I mean, it sounds like you think jobs have come about because of this uh, approach to you and your writing, not approach outlook, not outlook. I can't (laughs) get the right word. You know what I mean? The presentation. I mean, I can't, I can't know what's on employers' minds. You know, that would just be speculation. But I can obviously perceive that the industry is changing. Whether or not that change will be longstanding depends on a lot of factors, right? One thing is that I don't think that uh, editors of color are hired as um, on the same clip as writers of color. And I think, obviously, it completely changes the infrastructure, of the publication when you have people in like higher up positions mm-hmm. who are able to shape uh, the, the direction of coverage and the tone and who are able to maybe bring in writers that other editors would not necessarily know to bring in. But I think you can see clearly that institutions 
and long-standing publications understand that there need to there needs to be a coterie of young writers of writers who um, are black writers who are brown writers who are not straight there needs to be a collection of identities that reflects the culture that they're covering or else there's always going to be this I think I don't know how to finish that sentence I think I might be done okay okay (laughs) I think you're doing a good job writing about not only what you know but uh, things you know most recent example uh, the episode will come out later but uh, on June 12th you wrote about uh, Bill Maher Mm -hmm. and the piece is short but really incisive and insightful about what's happening in that situation I I just want to read a quote from here Uh, Maher apologized for the way that the word I don't want to repeat what he said the n-word yeah Yeah. no no need to bring it up again (laughs) can bring pain but what he could not explore is the way the word seemed to bring him a linguistic thrill Mar has ridiculed young black and brown people for their sensitivities about questions of language yet in defending himself he seemed to invoke the very gains of identity politics he's previously derided yeah seems pretty spot on (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I with that piece, I was trying to find a different way in, obviously, in the past week. So we're talking right now in early June. People have been writing about Bill Maher because he said the phrase house nigger on an episode of a show. And I understood that I could not just write about that uh, episode. I mm. had to find a different way. A different entry point. A different entry point. And I do think that there's a more specific conversation to be had about why this man, you know, he's not actually the the way that he used the word syntactically was not to um, use a slur against a black person. Right. It was to identify himself as this like category Mm. of black person. And I think that that is like so much more interesting than the former. It's like, why does this white guy feel like, his experience can be collapsed into this um, identity that's not his to have. And so that's what I was trying to get at with this idea that there was like kind of a psychological, like weird psychological thing happening inside of him that I think should be alighted on because it's one thing to just say that he like used a slur or said something that he shouldn't right but like what are the motivations what's the intention the psychology behind it yeah that's a lot more interesting to me the linguistic thrills i think is the best part of that whole paragraph (laughs) thank you did you feel that when you wrote it yeah you know i think every writer knows especially when you're writing these quick one-off pieces obviously they're essays nominally but they don't they just necessarily can't have as much of the energy in them that you would spend on an essay that you like were writing for a week. Hmm. Um, so I always try to find that hook, you know, like I write on the internet. I know that things have to be tweetable. I understand that things have to be metabolized in a way that's, that makes for easy understanding. So that was like, I knew I was like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I felt like maybe that's how rappers feel like when they're in the booth and they like have the hook, you know? Oh, I'm, that's definitely what happens. Yeah, like I was like part of Migos when I figured out that phrase. 
you actually are part of the group. <laughs> you just, I know you didn't want to say it on the podcast, but breaking news. Do you think yeah. Bill Maher should be fired? No, I don't really err on the side of prescription when it comes to events like this. I'm more interested in analyzing what has happened than to get myself in a activisty mode of writing. Um, and that's because that's just like not my lane. And there are people who are able to corral movement online based on if they think Mars should be fired or not. But for me, it's like, I don't know what that would really do. Um, and I also know that it would never happen because <laughs> Mars is an institution at HBO. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's all to say that I think in instances like this, there's sometimes an idea that like you as a black person should feel like insurmountably angry and you should be feeling all this anguish and all this pain. And it's like, well, racism is also utterly mundane. It happens all the time. Like I can't get pressed every time some guy wants to be provocative and like say the word nigger on his TV show. I can't, but what I can do is use my position to write about it in a way that is hopefully thoughtful and um, explicitly rigorous. This may be too broad of a question. or <laughs> I mean it sincerely, though. Are you tired of people telling you how to feel and respond to a situation? Huh. That's maybe not that broad of a question. I guess in recent months, I have found myself withdrawing from Twitter, especially, but also the Internet in general, which I think is where we get a lot of the. OK, I think the Internet is where we experience a lot of the um, ordering of expectations. Right. The Internet is what tells you you should be mad about this. You should not be mad about this. You should pay attention to this. And you shouldn't to this other thing. And I'm a lot more freewheeling in the way that I consume culture, right? So I try to trust my gut when it comes to what I should pay attention to. And I don't beat myself up if I am unable to pay attention to something. Um, just because there's not, there's only so much time in the day. And I really believe in a work-life balance <laughs> which I think for a writer means just getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> Nothing more than that. Um, so yeah, you know, like you can't be there for every cultural event and you can't be there for every outrage. You, sh you need to know that like so long as you are able to be there frequently enough and are able to bring like enough of the critical energy that that's fine and like somebody else will pick up whatever like racist shit happens the next day and write a great piece on it. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else has it covered. Yeah. I mean, the internet is a vast wasteland. There's always another tumbleweed going by, you know, <laughs> that's my metaphor for the day. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> what is the work, uh, social life balance look like for you? I mean, it's different for every writer. Because, I mean, people always forget this, but writing is inherently isolationist. 
yeah, I, I know my writing hours. And for me, that means I just need to be up super early after. What are those hours? I'm going to sound unhinged, but I'm ready for it. I like to be up before six. I know. Right. Go on. Wild. Let me, let me, people can't see. (laughs) Let me build my argument. Okay. There's something about the hours for me from six to 9am feel sort of secret. Um, that's when a lot of people are still like sleeping or if they're awake, they're getting ready for their day. And I always find I'm able to steal away and just like have totally uninterrupted time to draft. And then, you know, once it's 10 a.m. and news is happening, I just get really distracted and I feel like the writing is no longer crisp and it's no longer pristine. So in the afternoons, that's when I do a lot of my reading. And that's also where I do a lot of my planning, right? Because writing isn't just like the drafting stage. It's also research and all that stuff. So to me, that's like a little bit more of busy work and it takes less psychic energy. Um, So, yeah, I would say like... I usually work from six to six or six to five. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the world's my oyster for like the five hours that I'm awake before I go to bed. So like in college, you get drunk sometimes. No, I mean, I'm not a, this is, that's kind of a weird question. No, that's what you <laughs> said. That's what you, I'm using your Yeah, quote. but that was a long time ago. Well, I, just, I don't think that changes. I think all I do is like steam kale, you know, like that's <laughs> That's what it is to be an My adult. My question's really you're yeah. you're steaming kale after a hard day's where you should be rewarding yourself. I guess steam no. kale. I mean, I know my body and I know that if I stick to the schedule during the week, then it allows me to have like personal time on the weekends. Mm. So yeah. Have you always been this disciplined? Is that being disciplined? Waking up before six. Yeah, for sure. I don't know. I mean it's just shifting your day a little bit, you know? It's like if I started working at nine I'd still be working the same amount of time, you know? It's just for me, it's I'm always in pursuit of quiet, and those hours are just the quietest of the day. So maybe that kind of like falls into an idea of discipline, but that's not like explicitly what I'm looking for. You said you're a workhorse earlier. I think I think I am. Was that true in college? Yeah, I mean, I've always... I grew up in a family where everybody worked really hard mm-hmm. and I've always gained a lot of pleasure and just excitement from doing the work that I do. And I've also always known that I have to prove myself in this industry and in media. So if that means working all the time for my twenties, like then that that's just what that means. Mm. Does proving yourself in media feel like how you grew up as the youngest kid? Where you felt like you had to prove yourself? I mean, the youngest kid always has to... Um, I didn't really have that... I didn't have that dynamic in my house. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm my sister... See, I'm the oldest in my family, and uh-huh. I, I always was looked at as okay you have to set the tone the example for your brothers i only did an okay (laughs) job to be honest with you (laughs) i'm sure you did a great job no my my home life as a kid we didn't really have that dynamic my parents never pressured me to become anything they just were you know i looked at them as examples of like people who 
work really hard, who cared about the work that they did. And that was just something that I was attracted to. Um, so I wouldn't say that there's like a psychological link between, um, growing up being the youngest for me and working the way that I do now. I think it's just more this like unending interest I have and the subjects that I cover. Hmm. One subject you covered that I want to bring up before we leave. Uh, I've read it like three times today. Oh, what is that? Okay. It was an article <laughs> called out of print, the religion of Phyllis Wheatley. Oh yeah. Uh, for yeah. For con- Lenny. Yeah. For mm-hmm. context. Uh, she was the first black poet to be published in the U S. Um, the, sh- the piece is fairly short, so it's not that impressive. I read it three times, <laughs> <laughs> but it is really good. And, uh, I just wanted to read a passage from it and ask you about this. Okay. Uh, you wrote, by the time Wheatley was in her early 20s, she had gained patronage from royals in England and maintained correspondences with premier contemporaries like John Newton and Thomas Paine. In Massachusetts, to her white audience, Wheatley seemed an exceptional Negro, an example of what white education and refinement could achieve. Um, the last paragraph, the line that I love, is, in her second life, Wheatley's poetry and the imagined determination it took to create it to appropriate the language of white imperialism for her personal truth has become a founding myth of a newer black female canon. Here's my theory. (laughs) This is you. A little bit. What? There's some (laughs) parallels here. Like, what kind of parallel? I'll tell you. you, Okay, I'll explain it. This is not just a... You're both women of color writing. I, I, I developed this. And you could say this theory, by the way, is completely dumb. Okay. Just le- hear me out. Okay. I'm, f- I'm going to hear you out. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Let's go for it. She gained success in her early 20s. That is you. She had correspondence with Newton and Thomas Paine. You've worked for New Yorker. You've done all this stuff. You've written, like, I mean, all these profiles you've done that were great. I mean... Kara Walker, Donna Edwards, Renee Stout, correspondence with, okay, they're not Thomas Paine, but they're more <laughs> interesting than Thomas Paine, quite honestly. And the white imperialism part, I mean, I was looking at Brown. In your graduating class as an undergrad in 2014, the makeup was 6.7 African-Americans, percent, 6.7%. And 43% white. I don't know. I mean... Is this a stretch? It's a huge stretch. First of all, Phyllis Wheatley was born a slave. And... I know this. Remained enslaved for her whole life. And I don't think that... I meant purely not uh, not on that, those merits. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's important to... To not use her life in that <laughs> metaphorical way. And also... I think on paper there might be projections that one can make about like where I went to school and how I grew up and the communities that I've um, had to maybe like the communities that I had to negotiate space in. But I also like I grew up in Canarsie, Brooklyn. Like I never felt like I was a black person in a white space ever. Um, and I think that it's important to kind of like make the narrative a little bit more particular because 
obviously these institutions, an institution like Brown University, institutions like many of the publications that I've written from, they have a history of longstanding whiteness. But that does not mean that writers are, you know, like burdened by that necessarily because we're crafty and we find ways to do what we've always done. So I'm going to push back on the comparison. that's, That's completely fine. Just to say that like there's this idea that like black writers are like dour people fighting to get in. And obviously there's an element of struggle in being in the industry. But I also think that like there's an element of, celebration and of um, an element of celebration and maybe also an element of specificity which is to say that everyone's story is different yeah and I think that everybody writes for themselves ultimately and so yeah you know I never like felt like my voice was being pushed into a direction that was in the service of like white supremacy mm-hmm. <laughs> in any of my work. Um, so yeah, me and Phyllis, we, we had a bit of a different time. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the effort though. Well, I, I appreciate you combating in a, in a way that makes sense. And uh, I will say my misstep there is one I think has probably happened to you before. It's it's too much um, broad generalizations mm. of your upbringing based on skin color and like your experiences of being an outlier. You know that, and I applied that mm-hmm. to you, and it's just bullshit. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of overdetermination. Um, I think when it comes to the way that we talk about people through this new lens of identity politics that we're still figuring out, right? Like the language isn't complete. The language is still forming itself. Mm. And but like what you said, without specificity, what are we doing? I mean, yeah, it, it, it all you know? sounds the same after a while. And I think specificity is something that all people need to practice, not just white interviewers. <laughs> Anybody needs to, as much as they that can guess <laughs> gotta throw in a little jab <laughs> get as close as they can to the specific contours of a thing mm-hmm. and I like hope that if there are black writers who feel like the narrative of what it's like to be in that industry doesn't like totally apply to their situation I hope that they find ways to work around that you know like be creative be inventive I think that's what like true creativity is Um, being able to exceed uh, expectations or like already written narratives around who or what kind of person people think you might be Mm. last thing before we go okay you're 25 I am what do you want moving forward Oh, I'm not, I'm not a future person. (laughs) I try not to think about the future. I would love to, what's something that I want moving forward? Most immediately, I would love if Chopped would run every single day on the Food Network. Mm -hmm. It's a big de-stressor for me. 
And right now it's only like two days a week. Not so enough. that's something that there should be more. That would make my future so much brighter. Mm. <laughs> Any writing aspirations or just chop love? The writing will come, you know, but chopped. Chop, this is a plea. I'm using your platform as <laughs> an opportunity. Go ahead. Get. Use it all you want. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I know that's like obviously a way of me not answering your question, but I just try to believe in the work always, you know, and if I find myself kind of slipping or if I know that I haven't given a hundred percent effort, I kind of just like pinch just, myself. And you I'm just like, rolled oh. your eyes right there. I, Cause I can think of examples in which, um, I felt myself getting comfortable and I don't ever want to get comfortable. I always want to be on my toes. Well, this is a weird sentence, but I hope you don't get comfortable. Though. <laughs> no, I think that's a great, I mean, I, I made it, but I think it's a great sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Cause you made it. <laughs> uh, Doreen, thank you so much for coming. Thank on. you so much, Sam. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Of course. Special thanks this week to the good people at the Belagoy restaurant in New York City. They opened their doors to us and played host, and also served some really incredible food. You can currently find Doreen's writing at The New Yorker, where she is a contributing writer. We'll also include links to her Twitter, her work at MTV, and the Lenny Letter at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Music by Dylan Peck. Our assistant producer is Valerie Ettenhofer. And the show is produced by Nora Knight. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators 
whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you, and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry, and me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.